1917, of course, 500 years ago, there were deep rumblings that were at work within the Roman Catholic Church. So some historians have said that John Wycliffe and John Huss had packed a powder keg full of explosives. Erasmus had woven a fuse and inserted it into the bomb. And then on October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther lit the fuse and rocked all of Europe. That's what some historians have said. So you say, well, how did that all happen? Well, you need to kind of back up a little bit to understand all these deep rumblings that were going on before 1517. My studies of church history, I found that it was interesting back in 1409. Did you know there were actually three popes? Three popes. It was a mess. And it was interesting because uh, in the midst of that mess, each pope ended up excommunicating all of the other pope's followers. So in, in other words, the entire Christian world, uh, so-called at that time, had been excommunicated one way or another. And as a result, uh, the, the priest and the lay people had become unsure. Where do we actually find the true church? Good question. That big question was essentially, where is the church? What is the church? Well, John Wycliffe was helpful. He was called the morning star of the Reformation. John Wycliffe was a professor at Oxford University in England. You'll see one person's description of him here. He, Wycliffe that is, claimed the church was not built on popes. By the way, that makes you a heretic when you say statements like that. And, and so you say, well, what is the church then? Well, here's his description. He said the church was every person that was called by God to faith in Jesus Christ. And in his book the, called The Church and Her Members, he said, quote, the only head of the Holy Church is Jesus Christ. Well, that made him a heretic, and a lot of people wanted him dead just for saying stuff like that. And But what ended up happening is God protected Wycliffe and he survived, and eventually Wycliffe's ideas quickly traveled beyond England's borders and, and even went as far as Bohemia, which today's modern-day Czech Republic. And so these, these truths that Wycliffe was writing about and preaching about ended up making their way to a very brilliant professor and priest by the name of John Huss. And so Huss encountered Wycliffe's ideas, and he ends up becoming converted and ends up preaching biblical truth from a pulpit in Prague, which is in modern-day Czech Republic. Well, the encounter with truth ended up costing him his life, and in 1415, Huss was burnt at the stake. Praise God, he died singing the Psalms. But these guys, remember, as a historian said, John Wycliffe and Huss, had packed the powder keg full of explosives. It was ready to go off. And the movement toward radical reform was well underway. Some have said division is never desirable. Yet, when you build something better, division is sometimes necessary. It's like if you're remodeling an old house. If you've ever seen those remodeling shows, they they often make a huge mess before they clean the place up and making it looking really nice. I'm not suggesting you do that, by the way, so ladies, please don't attack me. Uh, your houses look beautiful. But uh, few. you need to understand, few if any of the Roman Catholics wanted division. 
they desired unity, yet reform was inevitable. And you say, why? Well, it was a mess in so many ways. Many people believed they could earn salvation through good works and, and the buying of indulgences. Tradition had replaced Scripture as the church's supreme authority. The church's leadership was corrupt. There was false teaching everywhere. And so reform was necessary. And so God, at this point, praise God, because he basically said, I've had enough. Okay, I'm going to give you a tool. <laughs> so God's tool to help the reform was Martin Luther. But it's interesting, at the time, in 1517, as far as I understand, Luther was still an unconverted Catholic monk. So when he puts the 95 Theses on the church door in Wittenberg, Germany, he's not even saved. He can see problems, but you know he doesn't have all the answers yet. And there was a question that haunted Luther. You need to understand his way of thinking here. He, he was asking, how can anybody please a righteous God? He recognized God's holy. I'm not. This is a massive problem. What's the solution? And so when he reads Romans 1.17 and he sees that phrase there, the righteousness of God, the question just tormented him. And so he's trying to do everything he can to be right with God and nothing seemed to be working. So Martin Luther finds the answer in Erasmus's Greek New Testament. So you have to understand the, the Latin Vulgate was the Bible of that day and was for like, what, a thousand years or something like that. And so, so along comes Erasmus's Greek New Testament, which some had considered the, the, the fuse that had been inserted into the bomb. This comes along and it just opened up Luther's eyes to truth. And so now he's reading in Greek, the original language, and he realized that that word righteousness means not only the condition of being righteous, but also the act of declaring someone to be righteous. So in other words, God's not, God not only is righteous himself, but God's also giving righteousness, the, the righteousness of his son Jesus Christ to sinners, so that he now looks at sinners as righteous. So there, there you go. There's a solution to this question that's been plaguing him. How can a sinner be right with God? It's not through his good works. It's through the righteousness of Christ. And so this righteousness is God's gift given to every person who puts their trust in Christ alone. And so Martin's peace and the truth ends up becoming this explosive passion for the truth. He, he must have been a passionate guy anyway, just a zealous guy. But God's using that passion. But then some have also said the trigger to the bomb was a monk by the name of Tetzel. You'll see a, a picture of the Tetzel selling these indulgences. Now, why you say, why was he the trigger to the bomb? Well, you have to understand some. Martin Luther at this time, not only was he a professor, he's also a pastor in Wittenberg, Germany, and he was concerned about a lot of his people going and buying these indulgences from Tetzel. And you need to understand what an indulgence is to really understand the times. So an indulgence was basically a piece of paper with the authority of the Pope. It was So the Pope's offering forgiveness of sins and, uh, you know, you buy an indulgence and 
You know, you you can you can get out of purgatory. You can get somebody else out of purgatory. So that's that's basically what it was. And you say, well, why was Tetzel selling indulgences? Well, the Pope needed money to finish this huge cathedral back in Rome, which is called Saint Peter's Basilica, which was in Rome. And and how did Tetzel get money? How was how was he? I mean, these people weren't rich on the whole. So how's he getting the money? Well, he had this, uh, there's this quote that comes from the time period. He was probably using something like this, which goes like this. Here's what he claimed. As soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. Well, that's a great way to earn some money, isn't it? If it was true, but it wasn't. And so that really angered Luther. And so he had all these people in his church coming and saying, "Hey, uh, you know, I don't need to go to confession, and I don't care about mass, and you know, I don't need the, you know, all that stuff anymore." Because look what I got, Luther. I got a, I got an indulgence from the Pope. Well, Tetzel's misuse of the church's power just enraged Luther. Therefore, Luther decided, "I'm going to debate this indulgence peddler. I've had enough." So Luther writes up the list of 95 topics. To debate, by the way, uh, some of them had to do with repentance. You can't buy God's mercy is what he was basically saying. And supposedly he, you know, as tradition says, he nailed them to the church door in Wittenberg, Germany. But you have to understand, all Luther wanted to do was to challenge Tetzel's teachings about indulgences. He never intended to start a denomination. But nevertheless, God wanted him to shake the world. How did he do that? Basically, by challenging the false teaching of the day. He challenged the false teaching of the day. And the church has, has always been under attack from false teaching. We, we see a lot of that in the New Testament, in the letters to these specific churches. And we're going to look at one here today from Colossians. Colossians had philosophers, or Colossae, sorry, city of Colossae had philosophers, and the church there was facing danger of being infiltrated by false teaching. The philosophy, I hope you understand, is just a, a love of wisdom. Now, it can be good and bad, and, and in many cases it was bad. So, with that in mind, with understanding the church here at Colossae was under attack from false teaching, just as it is today, just as it was in the 15 and 1400s, uh, bear that in mind. We're going to see what Scripture says here in Colossians. So this letter is going to help Christians understand that acceptance before God comes through Christ alone. It's through Christ alone. It's not through indulgences or good works or relics or any anything else you might add. It's Christ alone. So look what Colossians 2 says, starting in verse 8. Verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Verse 9, For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, 
in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. God wants you to to, uh, see a few things from this text. Here's the proposition for today. That God wants you to watch out for spiritual threats and God wants you to take hold of your spiritual provisions in Christ. So there's a negative aspect and the positive aspect and those are basically the two main points we'll see from the text today. So first of all, what does God want us to do with this, this text here for today? He wants you to watch out for spiritual threats. There are spiritual threats, numerous spiritual threats. And it's interesting, the warning here is basically military talk. God's basically saying, hey, beware, lest any man come and and carry you off and take you captive. You become a prisoner of war. So the false teachers of Paul's day in the early church didn't go out and strive to win the lost, uh, just like many people in the cults and the sects do today they don't they don't they're not really big at evangelism uh, it's interesting a lot of them end up taking people out of the churches and so they kidnap converts from churches you say how is it possible for false teachers to capture people well look what the scripture says how is this possible for false teachers to capture people and kidnap them Here's some practical things the Scripture shows us. Number one, the false teachers take advantage of people's ignorance of God's truth. You say, how do people end up in from Christian churches into cults? How does that happen? <laughs> well, they're ignorant of God's truth. They don't understand their Bibles. And so the captives are ignorant of their Bibles. They're ignorant of Scripture. And so they, they can't combat the false teaching. And as a result, they become fascinating as, fascinated, sorry, as it says here, by the philosophy, this love of wisdom of the false teachers. Now, this is not to say that all philosophy is wrong, uh, because there is such a thing as Christian philosophy of life, where we, we apply the Word of God to, to our lives. That's, that's great. But the word here just simply means the love of wisdom. But when, a person doesn't know the doctrines of the Christian faith, they don't know theology, you can be easily captured by false religions. So I guess the practical application is pretty obvious, isn't it? Don't be ignorant of God's truth. Know your theology. Know sound doctrine. Know it so well that when what is, it, what is error, what is false comes along, it's, it's obvious to you. So you're not deceived. So how is it that people are are taken captive? Number two, the false teachers draw on human tradition. They draw on human tradition. That word in your text there, uh, the word tradition in verse 8, talks about human tradition there. 
means that which is handed down. So there is such a thing as true Christian traditions. And the important thing about any teaching, by the way, is its origin. Tradition is not inherently evil. Please understand that. But what is the origin of that tradition? In other words, did it come from God or did it come from man? Notice the text says human traditions. Now sometimes our our man-made traditions are become more important to us than the God-given doctrines of the Scripture. Well, then you've got a problem, obviously. Uh, so, so you always got to reset your, your thinking, uh, renew your mind according to the Scriptures, ask yourself, why am I doing this? Why is the church doing this? Why does my family do this? <laughs> and if you don't have a good scriptural reason for that, well, you might want to re-examine that. And while it's not wrong to have church traditions that remind us of our godly heritage like we do on Reformation Sunday, you have to be careful not to make those traditions equal with the Word of God. And there was that was one of the dangers why we needed a Reformation is because human traditions had had gone above Scripture. And so, you know, dare someone like a Martin Luther uh, attack or or challenge those human traditions like the selling of indulgences, well, that makes you a heretic. That makes you someone who is wrong because you're challenging the human traditions of the day. So you see how that, I hope you can see how false teachers draw on human traditions. But how, how can you be taken captive? Number three, verse eight here, it says that the false teachers involve the elemental spirits of the world. Well, that's what my translation says. The elemental spirits of the world. You might have a, a footnote at the bottom of your Bible. It might help you explain another reading of what that's talking about. But, but basically, uh, you need to understand in ancient Greece, that word meant the elemental spirits of the universe. The, the angels, if you will, that influenced the heavenly bodies. It was uh, one of the words in the vocabulary of the religious astrology of Paul's day. So what happened is the Gnostics of, of Paul's day, which was, which was the false teachers that Paul had to deal with, those Gnostics believed that the angels and the heavenly bodies influenced people's lives. And so this is where you get, uh, you know, people, you know, reading horoscopes and getting into weird stuff, looking at, constellations and stars and you know aligning of planets and you know blood moons and all sorts of other stuff going on out in outer space right and so they're they're watching all this stuff and they're drawing conclusions from that so the the false teachers are involving that sort of stuff so such teachings about demons and angels were not a part of true christian doctrine if anything the they were actually satanic and, and so they're drawing upon this stuff that is outside Scripture that has no, no solid proof. And you know, you can you can read whatever you want into looking at stars and so forth, right? But that's that's the sort of thing they were doing. And so some people get taken captive uh, through those means. Well, the fourth fourth means you can be taken captive is, is these false teachers come up with supplements for Christ. Christ isn't enough. 
I, I need to add other stuff to him, basically. Notice the, the text says it's the end of verse 8, and not according to Christ. Not according to Christ. So the fact that this teaching is not after Christ is sufficient to warn us against things like horoscopes and astrology and I hope I hope none of you have used Ouija boards or other strange spiritist practices, uh, you know, reading palms, cards, or, you know, there's all kinds of stuff where people do this. They're all supplements for Christ. The, in fact, the entire zodiac system is contrary to the teaching of God's Word. And so the Christian who ends up dabbling, supplementing Christ with with things like mysticism, the occult, is you're you're. Let me be blunt. You're asking for trouble. You're asking for trouble. So why follow empty philosophy when we have all fullness in Christ? Well, that was the question that Paul's asking in verse nine. Notice what verse nine says: "For in Him, that's in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells." Bodily, verse 10, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So why, why go and follow, you know, all these false teachers, these, these lovers of man's wisdom? When you have the fullness of Christ, you don't need anything else. So why are you doing this? Well, that's the question Paul's asking. It's, it's kind of like this, this next picture here. It's the best picture I could find. It's like somebody turning away from drinking out of a beautiful, clear, fresh stream of water. You know, they're looking at that side thinking, oh, that's just, no, I don't want that. And then they go over there on the other side and drink out of the dirty, yucky, disgusting stuff. That's basically what these people were doing, and Paul's concerned about that, and that's that's why he's writing these words here. Hey, you have the satisfying river of Christ. He said, drink for me and you'll never thirst again. Don't go anywhere else. <laughs> I mean, would you go and drink out of a sewer? Yuck. When you got nice clean water? No. Well, why do that spiritually is, is the question. So which water would you drink out of? <laughs> Obvious, isn't it? We need to understand the false teachers didn't ask the believers to forsake Christ. They weren't that obvious. They weren't that blunt. I mean, you, you could see that that false teaching coming if they're saying totally reject Christ. That's too obvious. So false teaching is often a little more subtle than that. And so they would just ask them to make Christ a part of the new system. And, and so you have you haven't forsaken Christ. You still have him, but you also need all these other things. With Christ. Do you see how that works? Well, that just removed him from his rightful place, which Colossians 1, verse 18, has already said, he deserves a place of preeminence. This high place of esteem and honor. There's no one greater than him. And so Paul gave the true and lasting antidote to all false teaching in verses 9 and 10. So, do you get what he's done here? He's just showing you in verse 8, what do you need to avoid? So you're not taken captive. Here's the solution, verses 9 and 10. Let's read it again. He says, For in Him, Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. and You have been filled in Him, who is the head of all rule 
and authority. Notice the word fullness. This is a key word, very important word. It means the sum total of all that God is. And all the sum total of what Christ is. All of His being, all of His attributes, His character, what makes who is Christ. And so, praise God, the gulf between heaven and earth was bridged in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. God became man. Now He has two natures. We know that. Uh, Scripture says that He is Emmanuel, God with us. So Jesus Christ here is described as the fullness of God. And that fullness dwells continually as well as permanently in Christ in bodily form. So once again, Paul's refuting this Gnostic teaching that was taking place at this time where they taught that matter was evil, all matter was evil, therefore Jesus couldn't have an earthly body because matter was evil. Jesus couldn't have been evil, so he didn't have an earthly body. Do you see that connection there? That's what they were teaching. And so then you get some of these, the writers of the New Testament had to address that false teaching, like in 1 John, for example, where John said, well, if Christ didn't come in the flesh, well, that's obviously wrong. And so when Jesus Christ ascended to heaven, he went in what? A human body. Scripture makes that point clear. They saw Him. They touched Him. They saw Him eat and drink. He was in a glorified body to be sure, but it was a real body. He wasn't uh, some, some you know phantom or ghost. After His resurrection, our Lord assured His disciples He was the same person in the same body. He wasn't a ghost. He wasn't a spirit. And today we have a glorified man, the God-man in heaven. The same one that left. The God-man, Jesus Christ, embodies the fullness of God. That's the teaching of the Scripture. Now, the remarkable thing is, is this, that every believer shares that fullness. Every believer shares that fullness. Notice again, for in Him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him. You have been filled in Him. It's personal. It's personal. So every believer shares that fullness. And it's interesting, the tense of the Greek verb there indicates that this fullness is a permanent experience. It's it's not a one-off thing. It's not something you have to repeat. You don't need a second blessing. You don't have to speak in tongues. You don't have to do something else. It's one-off and it's permanent. In fact, Dr. Kenneth Wiest, uh, in his uh, very literal expanded translation, put it this way. He was a Greek expert. He said, you are in him, having been completely filled, full with the present result that you are in a state of fullness. <laughs> he just repeats this idea. It's done. It's complete. It's, and he uses the word complete. You're completely filled full. So when a person's born again, into God's family, you're born completely in Christ. Completely in Christ. Spiritual growth is not by addition, but think of it by nutrition. It's a process. You're growing through the nutrition. You're growing from the inside out. 
just like a baby. Nothing needs to be added to Christ. He's already the, the fullness of God. So what more do you need? Paul's saying you don't need any more. So my friends, there are spiritual dangers that, that, that Christians face. So what's the fundamental question, the, the test of any religious teaching, any someone who claims to be a religious teacher? You need to ask this question. Where do they put Jesus Christ? How do they identify Jesus Christ? Uh, Does the teaching rob Christ of His fullness? Does it deny either His deity or His humanity? Anybody who denies either aspect of Christ, one of His natures, is a heretic. Does it affirm that, does that teaching affirm that the believer must have some new experience? You have to supplement Christ with your experience. Well, if they do that, the teaching is wrong and it is dangerous. It's false. Beware. Because you could be taken captive. Well, that's the negative aspect that Paul has just talked about. So he wants you to be aware of these spiritual threats. But in this text, God also moves on to show us, hey, draw on your spiritual provisions in Christ. You have Christ. It's completely full. Now let's talk about that. Draw on those. So we need to remember as we, we, we look at this that the false teaching that was threatening this local church was made up of several elements. So, so Paul addresses all of these things like mysticism, the, the astrology, the, the philosophy, even Jewish legalism. So the Jews are very legalistic in how they, how do you, how do you get a right standing with God? And so it was this legalism, the Jewish legalism that Paul's particularly dealing with in this section here. So apparently what was going on, the false teachers were insisting that uh, their converts needed to submit to circumcision. Uh, and they needed to obey the Old Testament law to be right with God. You say, why? Well, Gnostic legalism said the Jewish law would help the believers become more spiritual. <laughs> oh, that sounds nice. Not really. And so if here's what you needed to do, they say. You just become circumcised. And if they were circumcised, and if they would, uh, as the chapter goes on to say, if you, you know, followed a certain diet and you observed all these holy days, <clears throat> then you could become the uh like the the super ninjas the uh, the navy seals of the spiritual elite is basically what they were trying to teach you know you were the navy seals of the church <laughs> the delta force of the church or the sas of the church you're the spiritual elite well unfortunately uh well there's people even today who teach these sort of things in our churches But Paul made it clear the Christian's not subject in any way to the Old Testament legal system. uh, Nor can it do him any good. It can't do you any good spiritually. And so Jesus Christ alone is sufficient for our spiritual need, for all of God's fullness is in Him. That's the point Paul's making here. So as we come to this next section, understand Paul's explaining our identification in Christ. What, what does it look like to have all this complete 
fullness in Christ. What does that mean? So he gives us some identification with Jesus here that makes it actually sinful for us to get involved with this legalism. So let's look at our identifications with Jesus here. Number one, verse 11, the text says that believers are circumcised in Christ. Not physically, of course, but spiritually we're circumcised in Christ. Now, understand, circumcision was a sign of God's covenant with the Jewish people. Though it was a, think of it as a physical operation, it had spiritual significance. Even Jesus had this done. But the trouble was that the Jewish people depended on the physical and not the spiritual. <laughs> Aren't we like that? It's like our human nature. Take something good that God comes up with and you, you miss the whole point of it. Uh, we, we like doing that. There was a mere physical operation, but it could never convey spiritual grace. They couldn't save them, although they kind of took it to that level. And often in the Old Testament, God warned His people to turn from their sins and experience a spiritual circumcision. But notice God always said, experience this in your heart. It's internal. So people make the same mistake today when you say, well, I'm not teaching that or I don't believe that, but you can you can still make the same mistake. When people depend on some religious ritual to save them. So even people who claim to be Christian might use their baptism or uh, you know, they might uh, put too much significance on the Lord's Supper or communion or things like that. So they're depending on those religious rituals to save them. Well, they're doing the same thing that Paul's talking about here. It's not necessary for the believer to submit to circumcision. Why? Because he's already experienced a spiritual circumcision. And because of that, you now... As Paul says in verse 11, you're a, you have this identification with Jesus Christ. Look what he says in verse 11. He says, In Him, Christ, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So notice it's not made with hands. It's not a physical operation. It's something done inside you. Something done inside you. It's internal. So it's not necessary for a believer to, to submit to the circumcision, physically speaking, but th- there's this identification with Christ here. All believers are circumcised in Christ. Now, I've given you a little, uh, little, what do I call it, a table here. It's not original with me. Uh, I found it from a commentator. You, I hope you find this helpful. So on the left, you'll see the Jews, what they believed, but then... How does that, that relate to believers on the right there? Well, on the left, you'll see the Jews believed in the external surgery of circumcision. It was, a, it was an external thing, a physical thing. It was, it was only part of the body, of course. They didn't, they didn't do their whole body. Thank, thank God for that, right? Uh, but it, as Paul says here in verse 11, it was done by hands. And it, it was no spiritual help in conquering sin. Having a physical operation is not going to deal with sin, is it? <laughs> of course not. 
And, and then for a believer, though, this circumcision here that, that Paul's talking about is internal of the heart. It was for the whole body of sins. It was done without hands, because it's you can't do that with your hands internally. But it did enable them to overcome sin. Christ has the victory, as he goes on to tell us. Now, how did he do that? Well, he, he talks about his death and his resurrection, and when Christ died and rose again, he won a complete victory over sin. So what the law could not do, Jesus Christ did for you. You can't keep the law. As the Bible says, you, you, you break the law in one point, you're guilty of the whole thing. So there's no way we can keep the whole thing. So the old nature rendered inoperative. So you no longer need to, to be enslaved to these desires. The old sinful nature, of course, is not totally done away with. Uh, just because you're a, you're, uh, you become a converted Christian doesn't mean the old, the old nature is still there, right? You can still sin. But something's been broken. And Scripture tells us here it's the, the power of sin. Not the presence, but the power of sin's been broken as you yield to Christ and you walk in the power of the Spirit. So, first of all, we, we see here in verse 11 that believers are circumcised in Christ. That's your first identification. Look at your second identification, verses 12 and 13. We see believers are alive in Christ. You're alive in Christ. Look at verse 12 having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God. You raised Him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your heart or flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Wow. All our trespasses. So that doesn't mean you have to go listen to Tetzel preach and buy this piece of paper that the, the popes authorize that's going to free you from purgatory, do you? <laughs> you don't need indulgences. You can't buy God's favor. You can't. Paul's using the illustration of baptism here. So keep in mind that in the New Testament, the word baptism has both a literal as well as a, a figurative meaning. All right. The literal meaning, of course, is to dip, to to plunge, to immerse, which is why when uh, we talk about water baptism, believers' baptism, you're you're dipped, you're plunged, you're immersed into the river or the pool or whatever it is. But the figurative meaning, which Paul's using here, means to be identified with. Who are you being identified with? Of course, you're being identified with Christ. So Paul uses that word baptism here in a figurative sense, at least in this section of his letter. Uh, it's kind of obvious when you think of it the other way. If you think f- literally, uh, is there any amount of water, material water, that could uh, bury a person with Christ and actually make him alive in Christ? <laughs> Man, you could have Noah's flood and you're still not going to get there. So water baptism by immersion is just a picture of this Spiritual experience. And so when a person's saved, he or she's immediately baptized by the Spirit into the body of Christ. You are then identified with 
the head of that body, Jesus Christ. So this identification means that whatever happened to Christ then happened to you, happens to us. When He died, you died. That's what Romans 6 is talking about. And so, when Christ is buried, you are buried. When Christ is made alive and Christ arises, you are too. So when He arose, we arose with Him. And guess what? What did Christ do with the old grave clothes? He left them behind, didn't He? He folds them up and leaves them there in the tomb. So it's the power of God that changed us. It's not the power of water. (laughs) I hope that's clear. So the Spirit of God identifies us with Jesus. We're buried with Him. We're raised with Him. And we're then made alive with Him. That's how you get eternal life. Your identification with Christ. So here's the practical application then. Scripture saying... Don't turn back to the dead law. That's what Paul's calling legalism. That's, that's legalism. Don't turn back to this dead law that can't save you. Why? Because we're identified with Christ. You have all of this fullness of God in Christ. So what more do you possibly need? Don't try to supplement it. It won't work anyway. Well, there's a third identification with Christ mentioned in the text, verse 14. We see believers are free from the law in Christ. You're free from the law. Look what he says in verse 14. So he's for, well, verse 13 finishes by saying, having forgiven us all our trespasses. How? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. How did he do that? Well, see, Jesus not only took our sins to the cross, he also took the law to the cross, and he nailed it there in some way or form or another. So the law was, uh, in many ways, not your friend, if you want to think of it that way. It's, a, it's against you. Why? Because it's impossible for you to meet all the holy demands of the law. You could never love God with all of your heart and love people as you love yourself. It, it's not possible. Only Jesus did that. And so even though God never gave the Ten Commandments to, to, to us today, it wasn't for us, nevertheless, God's holy standards were written in our hearts. That's what Romans 2 says. God's holy standards are written in your heart. So even, even unbelievers, you can, you can see God's image in them and in, in, in some of the things they do and the things they believe and say. And so when Christ shed his blood for sinners, He canceled the huge debt that was against sinners. Why? Because of your disobedience against God's law. God's law condemns you. can't save you, but it certainly shows you're a sinner. Now, in Bible days, financial records were, you know, they didn't have the Internet, they didn't have computers, you know, the same banking system we have today. So uh, their financial records were often kept on a parchment It might be made from the skin of an animal or some form of paper. And so the writing could be washed off. It wasn't permanent. And that's the picture that the Scripture's trying to paint for us here. You have this debt written on their parchment, and it's wiped completely off. The debt's no longer there. 
So how could, well, that brings up a question I've heard a lot of people say, well, how could a holy God just cancel my debt? That doesn't make sense to some people. How can a holy God just cancel a debt? Well, God's Son paid the full debt when He died on the cross and He was buried and He rose again. So if you think of it in human terms, if you go to a court system, if a judge was to set a man free who is actually guilty of a crime, what is that judge doing? Well, number one, the judge is wrong, you know, of course. But he's also, in the process, he's cheapening the law. He's leaving the injured party without any restitution. But God, on the other hand, doesn't do that. He's the righteous judge of the universe. (laughs) And so God paid sin's debt. He doesn't ignore the crime and, and, and the guilt. He deals with that by sending His Son pay sin's debt when, when Christ was on that cross, was buried and rose again. He upholds His holiness found in His law. Jesus Christ, though, didn't just cancel the debt. He didn't just cancel the debt. He took the law that actually condemned us. He set it aside so we're no longer under its dominion. We're no longer under its rule. Christ fulfilled the law, Scripture says. So, Romans 7 says we're actually delivered from the law. We're not under the law, but as Romans 6 says, we are under grace. Oh, by the way, don't, don't take that too far because there's pendulum swings on this. You know, you start preaching this sort of way and then some people, whoosh, they go way over with the pendulum on the other side and then they, they become like an antinomian. You know, there's, there's no law. So that means I get to do whatever I want. Well, Paul addresses that in Romans 6. Alright, so if you're concerned about that, read Romans 6. Yeah, you're not under the law, you're under grace. But that doesn't mean that you're lawless and you get to do whatever you want. See, the righteousness of the law is fulfilled in us as you walk in the power of the Spirit. Read Romans 8. So your relationship with Christ enables you to obey God, but you're now able to do it for the right reason, which is, of course, out of love for God. Well, there's a fourth and last identification here with Christ, and that is believers are victorious in Christ. You're victorious in Christ. So Jesus not only dealt with sin and the law on the cross, but He deals with one of our enemies who, of course, is Satan and all the demonic hordes. So the death of Christ on the cross, uh, for some, may have looked like the end. It may have looked like a defeat. Uh, may have looked like victory for Satan, but actually, uh, as our text says, it ended up being a great defeat for Satan, which he could never recover from. Look what verse 15 says. He, Christ, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So, just want to point out three quick uh, things here, three victories that Christ brought on the cross. Notice the text says, number one here, that Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. In other words, he, he stripped Satan and, and Satan's whole army of their weapons. Imagine an entire army being stripped of their weapons. You know, all their swords and, and their, their guns, their bombs and missiles, whatever. Any, any particular weapon they have, an entire army, they're just standing there with nothing. 
What are they going to do? <laughs> it's kind of a funny picture. You think about that. But that's what Christ did on the cross. Stripped the, all the enemies of their weapons. So Satan can't harm a believer anymore uh, unless the believer wants to harm himself. Uh, and so it's, it's when we, though, we, as, as Ephesians 6 says, when you cease to watch and pray that Satan can use his weapons against us. So watch and pray. Use that spiritual armor to defend yourself. Now, that doesn't mean you don't do nothing. Use it so you can stand firm in the faith. So Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities. He stripped Satan of his, of his weapons. But number two, Jesus then put them to open shame, verse 15 says. He put them to open shame. In other words, he exposed Satan's evil ways. He exposed Satan for what he really is. It's, it's, he like takes off his mask. He's no longer able to deceive. Uh, and it was through his death, his resurrection, and his ascension that Christ vindicated God and, and then vanquishes the devil. You know, Satan is, is laid bare. Uh, it's kind of, I don't know, it's kind of like if you've ever watched the old Wizard of Oz, it's kind of like, you know, you got the Tin Man and the Lion and you got Dorothy and, and the Scarecrow, you know, they all go to see the Wizard of Oz and they, they're all scared by the lights and the smoke and the, the huge booming sound. Oh, they're freaked out by the so-called Wizard of Oz. It wasn't really the Wizard of Oz, was it? The little dog, Toto, runs over and he pulls the curtain and reveals the real guy behind the curtain. He's pushing buttons and pulling levers. Hey, and he's, ignore the guy behind the screen, right? It's, that's kind of, you know, in a strange sort of way what, what Jesus does. He exposes this, the, 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 the smoke and the lights and the sound. No longer able to deceive you. And then number three, Jesus triumphs over the enemy. He triumphs over the enemy. It's an interesting word there at the end of verse 15. By triumphing over them, it says. The idea, that was, that was used back in uh, Paul's day with the Roman army. So whenever a Roman general would have a, a great triumph, <laughs> it seemed like Rome would end up building some big uh, arch or something and, and have something to display these great victories, make them bigger than what they really were. But anyway, when a Roman general won a great victory on some foreign soils somewhere a long ways away, they, they would take captives, they would take loot. In fact, when they sacked Jerusalem, uh, you can see carvings even today. The sacking of Jerusalem, they're carrying off you know, the, the menorahs and other stuff out of the temple. All the gold and anything important to, to the Jews, they carried that off and they took it with them. They would take loot. They would try to gain new territory. And so the, the general would, would often have an official parade that was known as the Roman Triumph. And so that's the imagery here. So Jesus Christ wins a complete victory. He returns to heaven in glory. He has this great triumphal procession, if you will. And what does he do? He, in this, he, he disgraces and defeats Satan. It, it's just total. It's complete. Nothing left. <laughs> I love this imagery. I, I wish I could fully explain it to you even more, but my friends, get this. You share in Christ's victory over the devil. 
Remember, you're identified with Christ. Christ got the victory. That means you have victory. And so we, we don't need to worry about these angelic forces or demonic forces that's, you know, supposedly govern planets and, you know, as these, these philosophers are saying, hey, they influence your lives. You don't need to worry about that. God's in control. Satan's armies are defeated. They're disgraced. They've lost. And so as you claim the victory of Christ, what do you need to do? Paul says, this scripture says, Use the equipment that He's given to you. You have spiritual provisions in Christ. You're identified with Christ. Use them. He's provided them for you. And so, as all Christians, what do we need to do? What we recognize, number one, you have this glorious position in Christ. You have been given wonderful provisions found in Christ. The question is, do you know what they are? And are you using them? Are you living up to them? That's your question. Are you living up to this position and provision that is found in Christ? May God enable us to do so. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for the uh, the warning here, the spiritual threats and these glorious truths of our identification in Christ. May we understand them. May we uh, live up to him, <laughs> to them. So thank you for uh, sending your son to deal with our enemies, to conquer sin, to conquer this world and Satan. May we not live like we are defeated. May we, we live like we're actually identified with Christ. So we would bring you honor and glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.